Hey Crypt Keepers, I want to tell you about our exciting new affiliation with Parabox. Parabox is a t-shirt subscription box with a twist. Each month you will receive a new paranormal soft style tea and info card about that month's theme. The shirt and card will contain clues to finding a hidden password for use on their website. You'll also find clues to next month's theme. Correct entries get entered in a raffle for free gear. The shirts are unique. They're pretty dope with designs about all your favorite paranormal stuff like Black Eyed Kids, Bigfoot, Nazca Lines, and a really cool Battle of Los Angeles tee. That's one I'm hoping I will get here sometime soon. The designs are silk screened onto a soft style tee that's super comfortable. From the moment you open your pair of box, you'll be so engrossed by the t-shirt, you'll forget there's a puzzle built into it. That's right, each shirt contains a secret password. It can be in the form of codes, ciphers, riddles, numbers, images, or other hidden gems. Have fun exploring the design and putting the pieces together to figure out where to go next. Get your exclusive link in the show notes, and we get a little kickback when you sign up for the box, so you can support the show while getting cool swag with mysteries in the process. Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to Cryptique. We're coming at you undead from the Crypt Keeper vaults in freezing St. Louis, Missouri. I am rejoined by the second half of the two-man gang who's recovering from voice issues. Ryan, what's up? Not a whole lot. And voice issues is very mild. <laughs> I'm feeling a lot better, thank you. I'm glad to hear it. It's good to have you back. Well, let me tell you guys what you need to know. You need to click that share button and put us all over your favorite social media sites. You guys have done so much for us just by clicking that share button and spreading the word about your favorite podcast on the paranormal, hidden history, forbidden knowledge, cryptids, conspiracy theories, not last, not least, the metaphysical. But we are going to switch it up and we're going to talk about Little Albert. Now, this is kind of a story where Ryan and I are going to discuss ethics and it's just a very interesting experiment that was done on a nine-month-old child. So you want to start off with little Albert? Sure. Little Albert was a nine-month-old infant who was tested on his reactions to various neutral stimuli. He was shown a white rat, a rabbit, a monkey, and various masks. Albert was described as, on the whole, stolid and unemotional, and showed no fear of any of these stimuli. However, what did startle him and cause him to be afraid was if a hammer was struck against a steel bar behind his head, which would scare me. Yes. The sudden loud noise would cause little Albert to burst into tears. When little Albert was just over 11 months old, the white rat was presented, and seconds later, the hammer was struck against the steel bar. After seven pairings of the rat and noise in two sessions one week apart, Albert reacted with crying and avoidance when the rat was presented without the loud noise. By now, little Albert only had to see the rat, and he immediately showed every sign of fear. He would cry whether or not the hammer was hit against the steel bar, and he would attempt to crawl away. This fear began to fade as time went on. However, the association could be renewed by repeating the original procedure a few times. 
Five days later, Watson and Rayner found that Albert developed phobias of objects which shared characteristics with the rat, including the family dog, a fur coat, some cotton wool, and a father Christmas mask. And we know what the masks looked like back then. They probably scared the shit out of everybody. <laughs> They're probably terrifying, yeah. This process is known as generalization. The Little Albert experiment demonstrated that classical conditioning could be used to create a phobia. A phobia is an irrational fear that is out of proportion to the danger. In this experiment, a previously unafraid baby was conditioned to become afraid of a rat. It also demonstrates two additional concepts originally outlined by Pavlov. Extinction. Although a conditioned association can be incredibly strong initially, it begins to fade if not reinforced until it disappears completely. And generalization. Conditioned associations can often widen beyond the specific stimuli presented. For instance, if a child develops a negative association with one teacher, this association might also be made with others. Over the next few months, little Albert was observed, and ten days after conditioning, his fear of the rat was much less marked. This dying out of a learned response is called extinction, as we just covered. However, even after a full month, it was still evident and the association could be renewed by repeating the original procedure a few times. Unfortunately, Albert's mother withdrew him from the experiment the day the last tests were made, and Watson and Rayner were unable to conduct further experiments to reverse the conditional response. And the way it's presented is, unfortunately, Albert's mother withdrew him from the experiment. Albert's mother should never have allowed that experiment. You don't mess with a kid's head. <laughs> I mean, it's now we're talking about the 1920s. There was a lot of bad stuff going on back then. And guess what? In 2050, we're going to hear about a whole lot of crazy bad stuff that was going on in 2022. And was it ethical? I, I mean, I would not ever submit my child to a test like this what, what do you think yeah i agree i think it's probably unlikely that the mother knew exactly what they were doing and probably withdrew when he started freaking out whenever she wore her fur coat or a scarf or something the researchers confounded their own experiment by conditioning little albert using the same neutral stimuli as the generalized stimuli rabbit and dog some doubts exist as to whether or not, this fear response was actually a phobia. When Albert was allowed to suck his thumb, he showed no response whatsoever. This stimulus made him forget about the loud sound. It took more than 30 times for Watson to finally take Albert's thumb out to observe a fear response. I, I can't imagine someone doing this, but it happened, guys. Trust us. Other limitations included no control subject and no objective measurement of the fear response in little Albert. Uh, the dependent variable was not operationalized. Tell us what that means. <laughs> it basically, from what I'm seeing, is that there there was no like control subject. It was just all this one kid, this one type of yeah. experiment. I mean, the way, yeah, the way I would take that is they had no way of determining if the response was truly caused by whatever experiment they were doing because they had no, like you said, no control subject, no kid who was exposed to the rat over time, but not exposed to the loud noise. Yeah. Because you need to have both. You need to have a control group that is, you know, exposed to something different than whatever your experiment is, you know, the, the placebo mm -hmm. group or whatever else to be able to say if there's really a uh, 
statistically significant change in behavior or whatever it is you're looking at. Yeah, it's amazing that they couldn't just find thousands of people that were willing to, you know, have somebody bang a hammer and (laughs) steal a bar behind their head. Yeah, well, guess what? I mean, you get this kind of response and every time the kid has to go to the doctor or the dentist or anything like that, you know, theoretically, they could associate the white lab coat or the chair they're in or, or anything, right? I mean, it doesn't have to be just the rat or just the hammer. It could be things that they're not seeing and things that they're not accounting for. Right. As this was an experiment of one individual, the findings cannot be generalized to others. And Ryan would call this low external validity. Albert had been (laughs) reared in a hospital environment from birth, and he was unusual as he had never been seen to show fear or rage by staff. So, yeah, they might be saying he's a weird little sociopath and doesn't have emotions. (laughs) Could be. I mean, you never know. That's why they have to test thousands of subjects. Yeah, because you might accidentally get baby uh, American Psycho. Right. Right. You end up uh, with the kid from Pet Cemetery. like, hey, I found your scalpel. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, little Albert may have responded differently in this experiment to how other young children may have. These findings will therefore be unique to him. The Little Albert experiment was conducted before ethical guidelines were implemented in psychology. I guess it was the wild, wild west, right? I mean, you know, Pavlov at least was like, "Mm, I'm going to fuck with dogs. But uh, (laughs) who are these guys? Uh, uh, Watson and Rayner. Yeah. Bastards. How could you guys do this? Of course it would be men. I, I don't think any woman, and especially a mom, although... You know, I try not to put things past anyone would be like, oh, that's a good idea. But (laughs) so that was before ethical guidelines. And yet and still we do electroshock therapy. Uh, This study can only be judged retrospectively. So we we're not allowed to judge them on their ethics. Yet I judge them on their ethics. Totally ridiculous. The experiment was conducted without the knowledge or consent of Albert's parents. There you go. Creating a fear response is an example of psychological harm. And finally, Watson and Rayner did not desensitize Albert to his fear of rats. So I guess that's saying, okay, you did all this and you found that the reaction kind of wanes over time, but they needed to go back and kind of reset things, right? And say, not every animal you see is going to cause a loud banging in the back of your head. They just kind of let it go and hoped that it would go, as they called it, extinct. The cognitive approach criticizes the behavioral model as it does not take the mental processes into account. They argue that the thinking processes that occur between a stimulus and a response are responsible for the feeling component of the response. Ignoring the role of cognition is problematic, as irrational thinking appears to be a key feature of phobias. A 1989 experiment in particular presented a series of slides of snakes in neutral images like trees or things like that to phobic and non-phobic participants. The phobics tended to overestimate the number of snakes in the images presented. A January 2010 Upfront article was titled, Little Albert Regains His Identity. 
One of psychology's greatest mysteries appears to have been solved. Little Albert, the baby behind John Watson's famous 1920 emotional conditioning experiment at Johns Hopkins University, reputable place, has been identified as Douglas Moret, the son of a wet nurse named Arvilla Moret, who lived and worked at a campus hospital at the time of the experiment, receiving one dollar for her baby's participation. The princely sum of one dollar. One dollar in nineteen twenty would be fourteen dollars and five cents in twenty twenty one. Wow, you could almost buy two cups of coffee. Almost. Okay, so for listeners who don't know. Uh, especially in the 1920s, there was not readily available baby formula. And, you know, most mothers that could breastfed, but not all could, right? Not every female is capable of producing enough milk to nourish their child. So, a little creepy, but they had people that nursed their babies for them. Right? That's a wet nurse. That's what you got, right? Right. Yeah. So a little weird choice of jobs. Like, I don't know what, you know, like, hey, look, you look perfect for this job I've got. Uh, we're having. Um, I unfortunately, I don't think that's that unusual a thing to be judged for a job on nowadays. Now, when you're getting into the kid part of it, maybe that makes it a little more special. Since then, Little Albert's fate and identity have been a recurring question among psychology scholars, including Appalachian State University psychologist Hall P. Beck, Ph.D., who with a team of colleagues and students sought answers. I always wonder about people with names like Hall. Why would you name your kid Hall? I mean, I guess maybe it could be like the mother's maiden name or something like that. But come on, man. Hall? I don't know. There are some unusual names out there. Conferred with facial recognition experts, met with relatives of the boy they theorized was Albert. Eventually, the pieces of the puzzle came together. The attributes of Douglas and his mother matched virtually everything that was known about Albert and his mother. Like Albert's mother, Douglas's mother worked at a pediatric hospital on a campus called the Harriet Lane Home. Like Albert, Douglas was a white male who left the home in the early 1920s and was born at the same time as the year of Albert. A comparison of a picture of Albert with Douglas's portrait revealed facial similarities. <laughs> similarities. <laughs> uh, sadly, the team also discovered that Douglas died at age six of acquired hydrocephalus and was unable to determine if Douglas's fear of furry objects persisted after he left Hopkins. So they really don't know. They could have fucked him up for life. That's really sad. And it's sad that he died at six, of course. But I don't know. I keep going back to would you do this to your child? And if you wouldn't do it to your own child, for God's sake, don't do it to somebody else's child. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You want to tell us about the team with Charmin Levinson? Sure. The team, which also included Charmin Levinson, Ph.D., of the American University in Paris and Gary Irons, the grandson of Arvilla Moret, published their findings in the October American Psychologist, Volume 64, Number 7. The article not only satisfies a long-held curiosity, but also reflects a growing interest in the fate of research participants, says Kathy Fay, 
of the Archives of History of American Psychology at the University of Akron. Participants in such famous controversial studies have become unwitting protagonists whose stories are told over and over again in psychology textbooks, she says. So people become very curious. Who were they and how did they feel about the experiment? Beck is pleased his students have answered some of those questions, but the real bonus, he believes, is what they gained in the research process. The search took them beyond the memorization of their lectures and textbooks and for the first time into the creative world of psychological research, he says. In the end, that was even more important to them than finding Albert. Albert is lost in the mix, and we don't know much or or really anything about what happened to him after he left, other than that he, you know, died young. And I don't think that there's any reason to connect his, you know, age of death with this experiment. But no, it's connected with being in the 20s. Yeah, yeah. And it, it just goes to show that in medicine, in general, I think Everybody always thinks that the person in the lab coat has their best interest in mind, and that's it. And we've seen throughout history that this isn't the case. And this is just one more tragedy in the dark history of medicine in general. Yeah, it's like that uh, the news documentary sort of thing where they were showing the horrific living conditions in that one asylum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was it Geraldo that did that? Geraldo did do an episode on that, yes, where okay. he, he went in. And now we're talking about Geraldo. You know, he's he's old now, but we're talking about the 80s. We're not talking about the 20s or the 1880s or something like that, where yeah. they <laughs> went into this facility. And, th- I mean, it was absolutely appalling People were covered in their own filth. They were naked. There was feces all over the place. They were sprayed with hoses to clean them off. They weren't given showers or baths or anything. There was no, I mean, there wasn't even pictures on the wall. There was no stimuli anywhere. It was just, you're in this box. We can't kill you. So we're going to do the least we can do to keep you alive. And it's, it's sad, but I mean, it continues today and not just in America. I mean, if, if we're doing this kind of stuff in America with the laws that we have and the regulations and stuff, what are they doing in China? What are they doing in these countries where it's basically, you know, medicine is a free for all. We we've talked about organ harvesting. I, I mean, actually murdering people so you can take their organs and sell them this is going on in the world as we speak and it's really scary and it makes me think hell is getting full Hmm. you know what happens when there's no more room in hell for these people that do this kind of stuff and i don't think that you know uh, watson and rayner are inherently evil entities that sought to destroy someone's life but they just were like fuck it let's see what happens you know let's let's just do some experiments and see what happens so yeah i mean i kind of get why they did it you know to an extent like you're saying they're just trying to figure out what's what Uh uh-huh 
there was such like a blind faith in psychology mm-hmm. for such a long time until we had things like, you know, what, you know, it, just revealing the conditions that people were living in and, you know, that people were being lobotomized for virtually no reason. Uh, and then, yeah, it's like the public very quickly started to turn on them, right? Mm-hmm. Probably around the 60s. 60s mm-hmm. through the 80s maybe there was kind of this this environment where everybody kind of realized like you guys do you really know what you're doing mm-hmm. or are you just you know fucking around and finding out mm-hmm. like do you really have to drill into that person's brain to like fix this behavior there was an experiment i don't remember who did it because i wasn't prepared to talk about this but i remember hearing like a stuff you should know episode about it where they were talking about a psychology professor Mm -hmm. who as an experiment he was just like testing asylums to see if Mm -hmm. they could actually figure out when somebody's insane or not okay so he went and checked himself in and he you know was was just seeing what it was going to be like in there for a certain amount of time and he decided that maybe he didn't really want his students to do it but you know he got a group of people together who volunteered to do this you know a bunch of them were psychologists or therapists themselves but they all went And their instruction in this one particular experiment was to basically go in and tell them that you were hearing voices. Mm -hmm. Like, just tell them that once. Don't elaborate much more on it. Other than that, act like yourself. Don't try to act crazy. Don't try to act any particular way. Mm -hmm. Just tell them that. Like, I thought I should talk to somebody about it and then see what happens. And for the most part, they were just kept there for like really long periods of time. Like they had a a mechanism for getting out if they really wanted to, but it was just like unbelievable. Some of the stuff that they they were diagnosed with, you know, at first they were trying to be really careful with like taking notes and stuff on what was going on. Mm -hmm. But the doctors that were at the facility just wrote down like exhibits, writing behavior. They just, they just assumed it was part of them being crazy. Wow. And like one of the guys in one of his sessions, he was just talking about like, oh, yeah, there's a little bit of tension at home with my wife, you know, because we have kids and they're young and we're trying to figure out like how to raise them and all that. And it, they what they had written for his diagnosis was like that he has like fits of uncontrollable rage and like a desire to like dominate and control the lives of those around him or something like that. Like extrapolate based on him saying that there's problems at home sometimes. Yeah, just yeah, just my wife and I sometimes argue over how to raise the kids right. Yeah. It was like they would take normal behavior and try to turn it into something really bizarre. But anyway, there was a bunch of that. I could talk about that for a while. But yeah, it made them realize like I mean, doctors are checking themselves in. Doctors are being given medicines, you know, and they were supposed to like dump the medicine down the toilet or get rid of it some way, not not really take it. But like the hospitals couldn't even tell. And then for a second experiment, they did it again. And the guy warned them, like warned this series of hospitals, like we're going to be sending in Mm -hmm. people who are totally normal, but they're going to say whatever they're going to say. And then you got to figure out which one is not crazy. Right. And over like a month or whatever, they flagged like 60 something patients as being completely fine. That that was the one that he sent in. Mm -hmm. He sent zero. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> so they've had a bunch of they failed to recognize that there were people in there who were just in there to like spy on them who had right. no psychological illness at all 
Undercover boss. <laughs> yeah, and then they identified like 60 or 70 people as being spies and people who are just pretending, but actually had a psychological illness that brought them there. That's reassuring. <laughs> yeah, the point being that, I mean, there was a period of time where we kind of, I mean, we just didn't know what we were doing. Like as a society, like that whole field of study, like they had some ideas and some theories and I'm sure they were making progress, but you know, there's, there was a lot of weird stuff going on because they were just throwing stuff at the wall to see what stuck. So things like this, like, Oh, can we condition a child to be afraid of something it wasn't afraid of before through association? Yeah. It's, it's as fine an idea for an experiment as anything else. If you remove the morality that you're scaring a little kid and possibly scarring him for the rest of his life. True. And it's stuff like this that makes people, I think today, like, you know, kind of leery of, you know, psychology. Well, I don't blame them. Have you ever heard, and and not that, you know, people talk about their experiences with a psychiatrist or anything like that very, very much. It's still a stigmatized thing. But have you ever heard someone say, yeah, I went to the psychiatrist and they said, no, they think everything's fine. I should see a therapist and exercise. I've never heard that. It's always, well, we're going to try this medicine and we're going to try this medicine and we're going to try this. And if that doesn't work, we're going to try this medicine. Oh, you might be bipolar. Okay, well, we'll try it with ADHD medicine first and see how bad that fucks your life up for a couple weeks before we (laughs) move on to see if it's bipolar. I mean, it's scary and it's hard because they're coming out with, you know, MRIs and stuff like that, that can detect difference differences in people's brain structures. And, you know, they can detect, you know, what kind of waves your brain is emitting or, or running on or whatever, but you can't, you know, it's not like trauma medicine where like, Oh, your finger is over there in the cooler. Let's get that reattached. Or, <laughs> Oh, you've got a, you know, a bullet, stuck in your lung. Let's take that out and see if we can fix it. It's you are trying to diagnose someone who may be crazy. And I don't, we're all crazy. I'm not saying that, you know, in a negative way, because I think crazy is cool, but you're sending people in who may very well have mental illness. And then you're trusting their description of their mental illness to you, which is inherently dangerous because you're kind of taking the word of a crazy person. Right. An unreliable narrator. Yeah. Well, I've been called worse. <laughs> it's all over out there. That's why if, if you go to a doctor or, or they run a test or whatever, hey, you've got high blood pressure. Or, hey, you, you might need a statin, a blood thinner or something like that. Well, you expect them to prescribe you medicine, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. that's pretty much the case. If you go to a doctor and they say, oh, well, you have diabetes, we're going to give you this medication, but you're going to have to make a lot of changes. You're going to have to change the way you eat. You're going to have to start walking, stuff like that. People don't want that. They want a magic pill that's going to cure their diabetes. And the drug companies are happy to sell you maintenance medicine every day, but a good doctor will help you find alternative ways to fix things without, you know, just taking a bunch of pills. Um, I have a dermatologist appointment tomorrow. I've been to like six 
dermatologist and it's always, well, let's try these pills. Let's try this cream. Let's try this. No one has ever said, what do you eat? Oh, oh, you eat pizza every day? Mm -hmm. You know, there's other things that can be used to fix things besides medication, lifestyle. You know, maybe somebody comes in there and they're like, you know, I'm, I'm seeing things. I'm having, you know, visions of, of this or that, or, you know, I, I have thoughts that my dead grandma is trying to contact me and they think, oh, well, this person obviously is schizophrenic, but they don't find out that the person hasn't slept in a week because they're, you know, they have terrible insomnia. Well, guess what? When you don't sleep for a week, you start hearing shit and you start seeing shit. And if they don't, you know, fix that problem, the medicine's not going to fix everything. You know, you got to get some sleep. You got to exercise. You got to eat healthy. You've got to do these things to, you know, promote your your health. And it's it's not just physical health. It's mental health. Yeah, your body needs sleep, but your brain needs sleep too. You know, your body needs protein and carbohydrates, but your mind needs it too. And if you're not getting the full picture, then it's kind of all for naught. But I don't know. That was my rant. We were talking today about how, you know, cows evolved to eat grass. So they eat grass and they're fine, but they don't want to feed them grass. They want to feed them corn because it's cheaper. Well, they can't digest the corn and it starts to make them sick. So they have to fill them up with antibiotics. And then they start doing all this, you know, adding all these chemicals and everything. And it's like, why don't you just feed them grass? Wouldn't that be easier? Yeah. I don't know. And, and I know company like the, the motto is create a problem you can fix. And that's what I see in medicine, but yeah, I digress. Or I probably used this quote before from uh Pirates of Silicon Valley from sure. God, the nineties or whatever, whenever that movie came out and Noah Weil in it, the guy from ER. Mm -hmm. Anyway, there's this scene where it's young Bill Gates and he's like trying to, they're trying to get Microsoft started and they're about to make this really important phone call. And he's like, you know, don't you see like, it's our job to convince them that they have a problem and that we're the ones that have the answer. Mm-hmm. We're straying a little bit far from the psychology part of it, but I actually went to a dermatologist several years ago because my hands were really clammy. Mm -hmm. Like I have like very dry hands for the most part, which is a little bit problematic if you're like trying to get like a bag open or something like that. But for <laughs> yeah. whatever reason, for like a month, they were just like clammy all the time and I couldn't figure out why. So I went in and I don't remember what it was. There was like some kind of like hand cream that had like a... Or it wasn't even really a cream. It was it was some sort of suspension, but it had like aluminum uh -huh. shavings in it or something like that. Apparently, there are readily available de deodorants that have this in it, but uh -huh. it's meant to like block up the pores that sweat. Uh -huh. So like if you if you have really sweaty underarms, you can put this on. But then apparently the problem is sometimes you'll like sweat more out of other places in your body. <laughs> so you can or you, you can even get a surgery where it'll like disconnect nerves that uh, cause sweating and it can cause really? that. Like if you have really bad sweaty underarms, like you might get this surgery to stop, like permanently stop them from being able to sweat. But then your like forehead may start sweating all the time or something weird, yeah. like something unpredictable. But anyway, the, the thing that 
you know, she was like, okay, well, this is what you should try. And I got some of it and I put it on my hands like once. And I was like, yeah, this, this sucks. And then I just was trying to like go through like what I was doing. And I just realized that I was eating kind of more salt than I realized I was more sodium. And I just wasn't drinking very much water. So I just reduced my salt intake, started drinking more water, went away. People underestimate the value of vitamins. I guarantee you, if you're not taking vitamins or some sort of supplements, you're not getting everything you need. And maybe Michael Phelps is because he eats 40,000 calories a day and eats 100 different kinds of food. Most of us aren't getting that. But guess what? When you have cravings for things, it's because your body is saying, hey, I need this. And it may be that you need, and I'm throwing this out there, it may be that you need more vitamin D and your body's like, oh, chocolate has vitamin D. I want chocolate. That's something that I'm used to. That's where I'm used to pulling my vitamin D from. And then you have cravings for chocolate and you eat chocolate all the time and you gain a hundred pounds, you have diabetes and you're on 10 different medications and going to the doctor once a month. Take your vitamins, folks. Train, say your prayers, eat your vitamins, be true to yourself, true to your country, be a real American. Mm-hmm. Boom. I'm trying to figure out what would explain my occasional craving for like Maker's Mark. Hmm. Or Aviation Gin. It's surely medicinal, right? There's a good reason for it. Well, there, you know, there's uh, a lot of research that says drinking a glass of red wine every night is super healthy. Yeah. Drinking a third of a bottle of Aviation Gym every night is probably a little bit less healthy. Probably. Not that I do that, but <laughs> it has happened in the past. Yeah, I mean, your body's trying to tell you it needs things, you know. And next time you go grocery shopping, look at two things that are right next to each other. Something that is considered healthy well they probably wouldn't be right next to each other but you know two things in the store one is a can of vegetables right so Mm -hmm. you get a can of green beans i'm going to have my green beans today and then look at the ingredients and it's like oh shit there's 1200 milligrams of sodium what do they need magnesium phosphate in green beans for why is there 15 syllable words that I can't pronounce in my green beans. And then you go to, you know, and that's 49 cents a can. And then you go and get fresh green beans and it's like $6 a pound. The less you get, more they charge. And it's the same way, like, you know, you talk about deodorant. I use native deodorant, right? Because I'm not like trying to be on a health kick or whatever. It, It just, it works. And it's got like six ingredients. And it's fucking $13 a stick. So I could get something that's $4 a stick and it's got tons of shit in it. I have no idea what it is, but it's super cheap. And that's kind of, you know, how it is. Like I used to hear people say, you know, how come, and this is not meant to be a diss to anyone. This is just to prove a point. How come people that are, less fortunate, poor, whatever you want to say, are overweight. Well, you would think if they're having trouble buying groceries that they would get less and they would be healthier or, you know, at least not overweight. But when you look at it, all the stuff that is super unhealthy and super terrible for you is super cheap. 
and all the stuff that's really good for you is insanely expensive. And until we fix that, nothing else is getting fixed with health. Yeah. Yeah. There's a place here in Edwardsville called green earth grocery. Mm -hmm. And they're like a, you know, they're like a whole foods or whatever, but like even more, Mm-hmm. fancy and like natural and stuff like they have gum that has no aspartame in it yeah they have all kinds of like super healthy like vegan cookies and things like that that are actually really really good yeah like all the all the stuff that they have there is fantastic but it's so expensive like even when i was working at boeing like you know kim and i were both working you know mm-hmm. making decent money didn't have a ton of debt wasn't trying to deal with you know starting and running a business that's super unstable in terms of its revenue stream. Yeah. Like even then it was like, yeah, I can't, I can't figure out how to justify spending this much on this stuff, even though I'm sure it's way better for me than like buying canned vegetables or whatever else. Mm-hmm. Like it's just so expensive, you know, it's 12 or 15 bucks here for a loaf of bread. That's like $2 anywhere else. Really what people need to do is start gardens. I mean, I bought, Two, and this is a promo for Super Sweet 100 Cherry Tomatoes. Two plants, $2.99 a piece. Put them in the ground with, you know, decent soil and watered them. And like my family eats a ton of cherry tomatoes. We did not buy cherry tomatoes this summer. We gave cherry tomatoes to neighbors and friends and family because we had so much bounty from those two $3 plants that it was insane. And, you know, I've got blackberry bushes, blueberry bushes, apple trees, anything you can grow on your own is a huge help. Now I'm buying these cherry tomatoes and basically it's coming out to about two to $3 per meal just for the cherry tomatoes for one person. Like my daughter eats a ton of it with like black bean pasta and protein pasta and stuff like that. And I mean, we're just spending a shit ton of money. It's six bucks for, you know, a little container of them. It maybe has 60 in there where for six bucks for the whole summer, we had more than we knew what to do with healthy, no pesticides, no fertilizers, nothing like that. All fresh, right out of our ground, cheap as hell. All you had to do is pick them. And I highly suggest that to everybody out there. Now it's a little different if you're trying to, uh, you know, make your own red wine or your old, your own gin. (laughs) Yeah. I dated a girl for a little while who had wild, um, mint growing behind Mm -hmm. her house. Yeah. We've got that too. All we really used it for was making mojitos and stuff like that, but it was like really good. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't something that we used a whole lot, but it was really nice to be like, Oh, kind of feel like a drink tonight. Just walk out the back door, go up to the mint plant, pick a few off. Hopefully there are no spiders in it, which has happened a few times. We planted mint and I want to say cocaine. No, basil. <laughs> um, ah, and I mix those up all the time. <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, I pulled them up by the roots. They grew back. I pulled them up by the roots. They grew back. Then they started growing in other spots in my yard, I, I couldn't get rid of them. I, I didn't do anything. I didn't water them. I didn't do anything, but they just kept coming back. And, you know, it's, it's a lot easier than you think. And, uh, if you are trying to just a little gardening tip, if you're trying to prevent 
insects from infesting your garden and you don't want to use pesticides, which is what I would suggest against, you know, don't use pesticides. Praying mantis egg sacs are like eight bucks. Just drop one in your garden in spring. Boom. Nothing, no pests in your garden. Now, you might want to wear gloves when you're reaching in there to pick out a green pepper or something. But what you're eating is pure, healthy goodness. Hmm. Hey, Crypt Keepers, I want to tell you about our exciting new affiliation with Parabox. Parabox is a t-shirt subscription box with a twist. Each month, you will receive a new paranormal soft style tea and info card about that month's theme. The shirt and card will contain clues to finding a hidden password for use on their website. You'll also find clues to next month's theme. Correct entries get entered in a raffle for free gear. The shirts are unique. They're pretty dope with designs about all your favorite paranormal stuff like Black Eyed Kids, Bigfoot, Nazca Lines, and a really cool Battle of Los Angeles tee. That's one I'm hoping I will get here sometime soon. The designs are silk screened onto a soft style tee that's super comfortable. From the moment you open your pair of box, you'll be so engrossed by the t-shirt, you'll forget there's a puzzle built into it. That's right, each shirt contains a secret password. It can be in the form of codes, ciphers, riddles, numbers, images, or other hidden gems. Have fun exploring the design and putting the pieces together to figure out where to go next. Get your exclusive link in the show notes, and we get a little kickback when you sign up for the box, so you can support the show while getting cool swag with mysteries in the process. You were talking about how psychologists will sometimes prefer to just prescribe you something rather than actually try to figure out what's wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Like, don't don't look into my past and try to figure out what traumatic event led me to be conditioned to be afraid of something. Right. Just give me a medicine to dull the responses. Right. Oh, your baby's afraid of rats now? Well, let's give him some uh, Lexapro or some uh, anti-anxiety meds. Not even asking how that got to be the case. Yeah. It's sad. And, you know, ask your doctor what they are, because I've been going to a doctor for a long time that I really like. And then I come to find out that there's different kinds of doctors. He's a pain management doctor. So, you know, he has sent me to physical therapy for things. But when you say pain management doctor, it's like, we're not necessarily going to try and fix anything. We're going to manage your pain. And, you know, like we talked about in trauma situations, of course, if somebody comes in with their finger cut off, shoot them up with morphine. You know, they need that because it's the, I can't imagine how horrible the pain would be. But, you know, if somebody is having recurring back pain, you know, don't just give them Vicodin and muscle relaxers, you know, give them exercises they can do. Tell them how they can strengthen their back. Uh, tell them about the type of like something that you wear that straightens your posture. Uh, tell them yeah. about yoga. Tell them about, you know, certain stretches they can do instead of just throwing medicine at everything. But people get paid when they throw medicine at it. So, yeah. Yeah. On that terrible note, I think we should uh, end. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Sorry about all the doom and gloom, guys, but, you know, take take charge of your health. Don't let anyone do experiments on your baby. I wouldn't even let them do experiments on a dog, honestly. I mean, I know, like, half the stuff we buy has been tested on animals. Well, probably all the stuff we buy has been tested on animals, but 
Anyway, War Booty, tell them what they need to know. Subscribe, click that share button, and put us up on your favorite social media site. Case suggestions can be sent to crypticpodcast at gmail.com. And we really appreciate hearing from you guys. We like knowing what you like that we're doing. We like suggestions. We want to know what we can do better, what we can what we can do worse. What yeah, what 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 do we do poorly that you kind of like anyway? That's pronunciations. I that's exactly what it has to be. Pronunciations and me like losing my voice and sounding like garbage. Like we talked about earlier, check out Parabox. Go to our show notes where you will find a link to Parabox. It is a cool subscription service. You get an awesome t-shirt every month, right? So they have t-shirts on all different kinds of paranormal stuff, all different kinds of conspiracy theories. Each one has its own puzzle for you to figure out and enter in the website. And if you get it right, eh, you could get some free swag. Helps us helps you they're dope t-shirts they're comfortable go to the show notes check it out oh that is cool they have uh what is that masonic temple detroit bell witch bridgewater area 51 winchester mansion jersey devil yeah there's some cool shit on here these are actually really cool designs skinwalker it's about 56 cents a day. Hmm. Everybody can squeeze out 56 cents a day, right? Probably. Just walk by the arcade machines at your place and pull out quarters that fell through. <laughs> yeah, when those really considerate homeless people are sitting outside with their cups, just reach in and take out the chains that they're offering you, right? Mm-hmm. Isn't that what that's for? Great. This will pay for my Parabox subscription today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, kind stranger. Yeah. I see these posts on like my neighborhood or whatever where they're like what's up with all the homeless people we got to do something and it's like yeah we do got to do something but it's not fucking getting them arrested and thrown in jail because they don't have a place to stay and they're doing their best to get a meal we need to do to fix the problem we're not throwing medicine at this problem we need to fix the root good evening crypt keepers (laughs) 